Welcome to the Growing Downward podcast, brought to you by Reformation Heritage Books. We're pleased to present Nick Thompson's sermon series on humility that was the impetus for his book, Growing Downward, a work that centers on the necessity of true humility in Christian life. Thanks for listening, and be sure to get a copy of Growing Downward at heritagebooks.org, and also make sure to visit growingdownward.com where you will find information, including interviews, study guides, and more. We begin in, in verse 5 of Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess this morning that there are riches in this text that we left to ourselves cannot even begin to fathom. You could have chosen God. You could have chosen to cause the message of the gospel to be proclaimed by heavenly angels. You could have chosen your message to be proclaimed by glorified men. But in your wisdom, Lord, you have chosen weak, frail, sinful men like the man standing up here right now. And you've done so, you tell us, so that there's no question about it who all the glory goes to. You use weak, unimpressive pots, clay pots to display the immeasurable riches of your glory in Jesus Christ so that everyone, everyone knows that it's all from you and through you and to you. And so we pray that this morning, Lord, you would take this weak sermon preached through a weak man and that you would demonstrate your strength and your power in our midst and in our hearts, that you would open the eyes of our hearts. Oh, give us the spirit towards this end that we would see, Lord, that we would see what is here. Give us eyes to see. We must see Jesus. If nothing else happens this morning. Make us see Him. If we forget everything else that was said, everything else that was prayed, 
everything else that was sung caused us to leave here saying, I have caught a fresh glimpse of my Savior. And He is glorious. Please, Holy Spirit, work in our hearts towards this end. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Martin Lloyd-Jones was once asked the question, how can I be humble? How can I be humble, Lloyd-Jones? This was his response. He said, I have no method or technique. There's only one way to be humble. And that is to look into the face of Jesus Christ. You cannot be anything else when you see Him. That is the only way. Humility is not something you can create within yourself. Rather, you look to Him. You realize who He is and what He has done. And you are humble. You are humble. That's why we're coming to Philippians 2 this morning. That's why we're ending things here. That's why we have to come back to this passage and take a closer look at what the Apostle Paul is telling us. We've seen that humility is a, the result of a Godward self-perception. But for sinners like us, for creatures post-fall, a Godward self-perception is always a Christward self-perception. It must be a gospel self-perception if we would truly know God rightly and know ourselves as we relate to God. We must do so through the mediator. And so we come to Philippians 2 to take a good look at Christ. And remember, as we looked at this passage a couple of months ago, that, that Paul is here calling us to a life of humble love. Life of humble love in the context of the local church. He's after unity in the church. And he understands that unity is brought about when we love each other in humility. And that's why he says in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility... Count others more significant than yourself. And then what Paul does is he goes on in verses 5 through 11, uh, specifically verses 6 through 8, to set before us Christ as the preeminent example of humble love. Christ. You see, Paul understands something. He understands something that uh, we, we are quick to forget, something that we do know, uh, he understands that, that Christ isn't just our example. Okay, So Paul is setting forth Jesus here as our example, but not merely as our example. He wants us to see Jesus as the preeminent, humble man, but he wants us to do so because he understands that when the Spirit illumines our hearts to truly see Jesus, you know what happens? We're transformed. 
And whose likeness are we transformed into? We're transformed into the likeness of Jesus. So here's the greatest example of humility. Jesus Christ, the incarnate son of God. And how do we become like him? How do we imitate him? Not by gritting our teeth, not by a bare determination and willpower. We imitate him by by beholding him through the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. And as we do, we're changed. We're changed. We're made humble. Like Lloyd-Jones says, you can't you can't see him. You can't see him without being made like him. And so that's what we're here to do this morning. I hope that's why you've come here this morning. That's why we gather every Sunday. That's what we do anytime we come to the word. We need to see Jesus. Show us Jesus, God. Paul wants us to behold a number of things about our Savior. And the first thing is he wants us to see Christ's lowly incarnation. We're confronted with this astonishing truth beginning in verse 6. And he's speaking of Christ here and he says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, what, what does Paul mean there when, when he says that Christ, the Son of God, was in the form of God? The word form is not used anywhere else in Paul except for here in this passage. But as we're going to see as we work through this passage, it's imperative that we understand each part of this passage within the wider context of the passage Itself, And Paul intends for us to do that. And so when he says that Jesus is in the form of God, he intends us to interpret it in light of the next phrase, equality with God. To be in the form of God is to be equal with God. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count that equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus, the Son of God, in the form of God, and as such, he's equal with God, and none is equal to God save God himself. This, this is a, an unequivocal declaration of Christ's deity. He is God, the eternal Son of God. He is the creator, as Paul will tell us in other places, of all things. So, so here we have this this exalted, majestic Son, the Son of God, dwelling from eternity in the bosom of His Father. This is inexpressible glory, inexpressible majesty, interpenetrating communion between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit from all eternity. Perfect love, perfect fellowship, perfect contentment, Christ did not need anything. Remember when we, we talked about God's aseity, that God is of himself or from himself. He doesn't need anything. So this is, this is whom Paul is setting before us, the Son of God, who is nothing less than equal to God in power and glory. But we're told this, that this Son did not count equality 
with God a thing to be grasped. Now again, how do we understand that? Well, it's meant to be understood by what Paul goes on to say in verse 7. Instead of counting equality with God a thing to be grasped, look at verse 7. He emptied himself. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Now, some take that to mean that Christ discarded his divine nature, that he somehow became less than equal with God. But that's not what Paul is saying, nor is that possible. God cannot become less than God. He can't become less than who he is. If the incarnate Christ is less than God, then he was never God to begin with. In no uncertain terms here, we're told the nature of this emptying. Look at what he says in verse 7. This is not an emptying by way of losing deity. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is, as we saw last time, not an emptying by way of subtraction. Christ isn't throwing off his deity. Christ isn't becoming somehow less than God, as if that were possible. He wasn't in the form of God. He didn't have equality with God, but now now he is somehow less than God's equal. This is not an emptying by way of subtraction. It's an emptying by way of addition. Christ in the incarnation is taking to himself something that he didn't have before. He's not ceasing to be what he has always been. He's becoming something that he was not before. God born in the likeness of men. God becoming a servant. Calvin helpfully explains this emptying of the Son of God in this way. Listen to what he says. He says, Christ indeed could not divest himself of Godhead. He couldn't become less than God. Not possible. But he kept it concealed for a time that it might not be seen under the weakness of the flesh. Hence, he laid aside his glory in the view of men, not by lessening it, but by concealing it. Did you see that? That's that's what Paul is talking about here when he says that Christ emptied himself. This is a concealing of divine glory, a veiling of that glory behind humanity. Humanity. Could you, you could think about it like this. And, and I'm going to be stuttering and stammering up here the, the whole morning, especially in any attempt to try to illustrate these things and help us to grasp these things because they are beyond the ability of a mere human to articulate and they defy any attempt to illustrate and to draw from things in the creation. But I couldn't help but but think of the story of, of King Saul. Remember Saul? And uh, and he was in, in a lot of trouble and decided, uh, you know what, that it, it might be a good idea to seek out a medium. Remember that, that story? So he goes to this, this lady in Endor, this medium, and 
Uh, Saul knew that it was a shameful thing to pursue uh, this this demonic uh, form of uh, wisdom. Uh, so he concealed his true identity. He he dressed like a normal person, and and so he went to this woman not with a crown on his head. He didn't go in pomp and glory. Uh, and require her to address him as your majesty. He went as a normal guy. He was disguised, as it were. But Saul didn't cease to become, be king as a result. So what this lady was seeing, he looked like a normal guy. But all the while, he was still royalty. Still king. Now, that's kind of. A little bit of what we're seeing here. Now, now there's a big difference, and that is that Saul wasn't a normal guy. Okay? It was a disguise. It was a fake. It was a, it was a show. Whereas Jesus really did take on human flesh. He really did become a living, breathing human being. A man. Okay? He didn't just put on like a, a suit of skin that he zipped up over his humanity so that He looked like a man, but he wasn't actually a man. He was fully, truly man. And in so doing, he emptied himself. In so doing, he concealed his divine identity, all the while still possessing it in all of its fullness. This is how low Christ came. He came so low that he became one of us. And friends, this is the hardest thing about the Christian faith for unbelievers to grasp. If you have a, a Muslim friend, if you if you have a Jewish friend, they'll, they'll be perfectly happy with you saying Jesus was a good man and Jesus was a prophet and Jesus was this and Jesus was that. But the, the moment you say Jesus was God, they say blasphemy. Blasphemy. Say a man, a a man was God. God come in the flesh. God born in a crib. The new atheists call this a delusion. They say the gospel, that that is just insanity. Who in their right mind would possibly believe that? And Paul, Paul tells us this in, in 1 Corinthians. He's speaking specifically about the cross there. But the cross is intimately related to the incarnation. There could be no cross, as we're going to see, apart from the incarnation. And he says that to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. And to Greeks as well. It's foolishness. Folly. But for those who know the saving power of God in their hearts, for those whom the Holy Spirit has opened their eyes to see it is the glory of God. The incarnation is the glory of the Christian faith. It is the glory of our religion, friends. Wonderful. This is God, the Son of God, eternal Son of God, stooping so low. For us. An important question that we need to ask is, 
How do we understand this coming down of God? Maybe you've noticed that I, I haven't used the word humble or humility to describe this. And, and we need to ask, did, did the Son of God humble himself in the incarnation? It's very common for people to speak that way, that the act of the incarnation itself was an act of humbling. And on the surface, that appears to correlate with our text, with Paul's purpose. He's setting forth Christ as the supreme example of humility. But that leads to a more fundamental question. Given who the Son of God is, can God himself be humble? struck me this week that for the past 20 sermons, we've never asked that question. Is humility an attribute of God? How would you answer that if, if someone asks you? Is it possible for God himself to be humbled? Well, certainly not in the way that we have been using the term. God cannot possess the downward disposition of a Godward self-perception. God the creator of the ends of the earth, he cannot have a lowly spirit produced by a controlling sense of creatureliness and corruption. But we've seen over and again that that's what humility is, according to the scriptures. And that being the case, we need to be very careful, I think, when we speak of humility as it relates to the incarnation. It is significant that Paul does not say in verse 7 that Christ, the Son of God, humbled himself by taking the form of a servant. He doesn't say that. Look at verse 7. He doesn't say, but humbled himself by taking the form of a servant. He says, emptied himself. And only then, after emptying himself by taking on our humanity, is he said to humble himself. So look at verse 8. And being found in human form. Okay, those words are really important. And being found in human form. So he has emptied himself by taking to himself our humanity. And now he is found in human form. And as such, he humbled himself. So the incarnation is not the outworking of humility. Humility is the outworking of the incarnation. You see that? The son did not become incarnate because he was humble. He became humble because he was incarnate. Now, I recognize that that theological distinction has the potential to go over the heads of some. But it's it's really important for us to get that. Because what is humility in its essence? What, what have we been seeing about humility? Humility is the, the creature in his whole soul reckoning with the fact that he's not God. Right? Is that not another way of Speaking of the downward disposition of a Godward self-perception that when we're humble, we just get on our faces and say, I'm not God. I'm not God. But God can never say that. 
God can never reckon with the fact that He's not God. Because God cannot be anything less than who He is. God Himself. So if we're going to speak of God being humble, we need to radically redefine what we mean by humility. We need to radically redefine it. Do you see that? I don't think it's necessary for us to redefine the word, though, uh, because there's a better word to speak of this emptying of the Son of God, a word that has uh, great historical precedence in theology and a word that we've already seen in our humility series, and that word is condescension. Condescension. Hey, remember that word? Remember when we looked back at God's covenants with Adam? And we talked about the voluntary condescension of God, his coming down to us, that we we could have nothing of him as our fruition, as our reward, unless he stooped to our level. We saw that that was an infinite descent because there is an infinite distance between the creator and the creature. There is such a condescension going on here. This condescension of God is not humility. The son did not take on flesh because he was humble. He took on flesh, friends, because he was love. He was love. It was his desire to bring corrupt creatures like us into the orbit of God's love. The love that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that perfect communion that they ever and always have shared together within the Trinity, God wanted to create creatures, image-bearing creatures who could share in that love. That's why God condescended to covenants with Adam and offered himself to Adam as his blessedness and reward. He wanted Adam to know this. And when it was forfeited, when it was forfeited and lost, there was only one way to get it back. And so all throughout the Old Testament, we find God coming down. We find him condescending to commune with his people. But never before did God take to himself human flesh, permanent As he does here. This is the greatest revelation of love imaginable. He considered us friends. He valued us. He loved us to such a degree that he was willing to come infinitely low in order to become one of us so that he might save us. This morning in my devotions, I was Reading in in Galatians 2, Paul says those wonderful words that I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what's going on here. That's, That's what led the Son of God to descend so low. What what led him to not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but to empty himself? Why did he do it? Why did he do it? He loved me. 
He loved me. And so he gave himself. He gave himself for me. Can you say that? Can you reckon with those personal pronouns in Galatians 2.20? For me, he loved me. Gave himself for me. He came that low for me. And, and this explains the correlation with our text. Remember the context here. Paul's calling us to humble love. Love. Can you think of a greater demonstration of others-oriented, self-giving affection than this? This is the lowliness of condescension, not the lowliness of humility. Humility cannot be attributed to God. It only befits the creature. And, And that brings us to the second reality in our text regarding Christ's lowliness. And that is his lowly submission. Without forgoing the form of God, the son was found in the form of man. Perfect deity wed to perfect humanity. And what does perfect humanity entail? It entails perfect humility. And thus we shouldn't be surprised to find the God-man humbling himself. Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. Now, there was no sin in Christ for him to be humbled over. He couldn't be like we saw in Isaiah 6, humbled by the all-controlling sense of his own corruption in the light of God's holiness. He couldn't know that kind of a humility. But Paul tells us that Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Christ's humility worked itself out in a life of obedience, and that obedience was to his father. Christ didn't say, like Disney's Elsa says, no right, no wrongs, no rules for me. I'm free. He didn't talk like that. He didn't live like that. Being found in human form, he had a controlling sense of his creatureliness. And thus he had a controlling sense of his obligation to God. A moral obligation to walk in personal, perfect, perpetual obedience to God. And and this was an obligation that was not cold, was not impersonal. This was loving obligation. The obligation that existed between a son who delighted in his father and a father who delighted in his son. This was loving obligation wedged to an intimate fear of God and a desire to live always under God's fatherly smile. Behold, friends, the humble Christ. Behold him in his humble Submission, submission so unwavering that it led him to sacrifice himself for us. He was in humility, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There were no limits to his submission, even the most brutal, shameful of deaths, even the very pit of hell itself. 
He knew what his father had sent him to do. And he carried it out in humble love for us and for our salvation. For what is the wages of our sin? What does our sin deserve? What does it warrant but death, eternal death? And here in the death of the sinless Son of God, we see in a more clear way than we see anywhere else in all of Scripture, the heinousness of our sin. You want a controlling sense of your corruption, a controlling sense of how disgusting and distorted your pride is. Take a look at the cross. Take a look at the son of God, what he endured as he bore the wrath of God, infinite fury, infinite judgment. You see, we, we have no ability to erase a single one of our sins. Left to ourselves, we are damned, friends. And, and if Christ had not considered us, if he had not valued us, if he had not loved us, that's where we would all be. He was perfectly content. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfect communion, perfect divine fellowship. But he came down. And he came down so low he was willing to die. Not because he had sin he needed to pay for. He's perfectly obedient. Perfectly humble. But he died in the place of sinners. He died in the place of proud, ignorant, God-hating rebels like you and like me. This is amazing. Think about this. Only God, who is infinite in glory, can pay the infinite debt of our sin. Right? We have no ability to pay that debt. But the debt that we owe requires nothing less than eternal death. And guess what? God can't die. In case you're wondering, God has no ability to cease existing. He can't die. And so, the Son of God comes down and becomes man. He becomes man in order to die. In order to die. So that in, in the person of Christ, we have these two natures. One person, two natures. Deity and humanity. And this enables Christ to be an infinitely valuable sacrifice. Okay? Think about this. Think about this. To be infinitely valuable, he had to be God. Only the Creator is infinitely valuable. To be a sacrifice, he had to be man. Only a creature of the dust can die. And so here we have the creator becoming a creature in order to die for creatures who have pretended that they were the creator. Remember, that's what pride is. We imagine that we are actually God. So, so the creator is becoming a creature in order to pay the debt that has been incurred for creatures who have exalted themselves above 
the creator so that those creatures can be brought back to the creator. That's the gospel. Amazing. Quoted these words from John Stott when we looked at this passage last time. And I want to quote them again because I don't think we can hear this too many times. He writes this. He says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. You see how humility just pervades the gospel? Couldn't help but think this morning of the words of C.T. Studd. He was a, a missionary to India and Africa, one of the most radical missionaries this world has ever known. He spent himself, gave up everything, riches, fame. He had it all, and he gave it all up to go to people who had never heard of Jesus and literally spent himself and died preaching Christ. And, and he, he once said this. He said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then there is no sacrifice that is too great for me to make for him. You think about that. If Jesus Christ be God, if he be the eternal Son of God, and he, he died for me. If he, if he stooped that low for me, then, then there is nothing that, that I could possibly give up that would be too great of a sacrifice in response. That's what Paul wants us to see. That's why he's setting this before us. Not just so we can get our Christology all in a row and, and have our doctrine all nicely figured out and make sure we understand the relationship of the person between the natures and the natures to the person and all the rest. He wants us to see Christ stooping infinitely low so that we might be impelled through union with Christ as we see him to live as he lived and and to recognize that whatever sacrifices we might give However low we might stoop, it's always a finite stooping. You can take your whole bank account, sell your house, everything. Give it all to the poor. It's nothing compared to what Christ is doing here. You see, we go around thinking, oh, I did so much for that person and they don't even appreciate me. Oh, look at what I sacrificed for my kids. Look at what I sacrificed over here. And Paul's saying, no, look at what Christ did. And you'll see your sacrifices are nothing. And you'll be impelled to give up your life for him and for others in humble, sacrificial love. That's why this picture is here. Wonderful. God himself in our skin. God himself bearing our Sin. It's the gospel. But it's not the end. 
of the story. For perfect humility leads to being lifted up. It leads to exaltation. God shows grace to the humble. Thus, Paul wants us to behold one more thing about Christ, and that is his lowly exaltation. Last week, we saw the exaltation that awaits the humble. The humble will reign forever with God in a new heavens and a new earth. And that is only so because the captain of their salvation has gone before them. He has been exalted to the highest place. And that's what we see beginning in verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now notice the word therefore in verse 9. It is because of Christ's humble obedience to his Father unto death that the Father has been pleased now to exalt his Son to the highest place and to bestow upon him the highest name. So there's a certain movement in this passage. We move from exaltation to lowliness to exaltation. Right? Paul begins with exaltation. The, the Son of God who was in the form of God. He was equal with God in power and glory. He was perfectly dwelling in communion with God from all eternity. This is exaltation of the highest sort. The Creator and all of His exalted majesty. Paul's saying, look at that. Look at that. And then recognize in the light of that how low the Son of God stooped. Exaltation to lowliness. Taking on human flesh and suffering unto death. Amen. Because the Father was so pleased by His Son's humble obedience. The Son took, the Father took His lowly Son and exalted Him to the highest place. Now, there, there's a difference between the exaltation at the beginning and the exaltation at the end. You know what that is? The exaltation at the end has the Son of God reigning forever in glorified Humanity. Glorified humanity. That's why I'm calling it a lowly exaltation, because there is still an infinite condescension happening. And it will happen forever. That the Son of God has chosen out of His love, out of His love for God's image-bearing creatures, out of love for us, He has assumed to Himself humanity, not just for a few short earthly years, but forever. And he's now reigning at God's right hand in glorified humanity as the first fruits of all of his humble people who will follow after him. But unlike while he was on earth, this, this deity of Christ, his, his godness, his majesty is not veiled by humanity. You see here, every eye is seeing him as he truly is, the God-man. And thus every knee is bowing. Every tongue is confessing. Paul is here alluding to very strong allusion, maybe even a quotation we could say from Isaiah chapter 45. In Isaiah 45, 
God says this. Listen to these words. He says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. This is Yahweh. This is God himself. And Paul's saying, you want to know who that was speaking back in Isaiah 45? That was Christ. The one who is in the form of God, the one who is equal with God. And now he has been exalted to the highest place. Remember what we saw in Isaiah 2 on that day. God alone will be exalted. But here's the thing that Isaiah couldn't see. Isaiah could have never imagined this because it is unfathomable. That this God to whom every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. This God who would be alone exalted would be in human flesh. The God-man. It's simply impossible for us to get our minds around this. And that shouldn't surprise us, friends. That shouldn't be a reason for doubting or questioning or unbelief. If we could comprehend the ways of God, then we would be nothing less than God. If finite creatures of the dust could understand the infinite, then we're not creatures anymore. Humility sees this. It glories in this. God is so good. So good to sinners. And so friends, this is where our consideration of humility must end. Christ incarnate, Christ Crucified Christ, exalted Christ. Behold him. Behold his lowly condescension and his lowly humility. God has set before us such glory in this text that there's really only one proper thing for me as a preacher to do. It it just seems so inappropriate to end the sermon with some concluding applications. Here's how you should live in light of this. I I couldn't do that. Do you see what we're seeing here? God's saying all he wants you to do right now is just look. Just get your face down in the book and look. Look. At the Son of God. Behold Him. Embrace Him. Receive Him as the humble, meek, lowly Savior that He is. That's where we have to end. Looking to Jesus. There's no other way, friends. No other way. We'll close with a very brief story of Carl Henry, he was one of the foremost uh, evangelical scholars in the 20th century. And he was once interviewed by D.A. Carson, another biblical scholar. And Carson asked Henry uh, how uh, having such brilliance as he had, 
he remained so humble throughout his life? Kind of a uh, an interesting question when you think about it, and a difficult question to answer. But this this is what Henry said. He said, "How can anyone be arrogant when he stands before the cross?" How can anyone be arrogant when he stands before the cross? We want to be humble. We want to be a humble church. And this is where we must stand. This is where we must give ourselves. This is where we must devote ourselves to the the study of Christ. I'm not just talking about mere head knowledge here. We've got to know Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, open our eyes. Help us to see what only you can make us to see. We can't grasp the weight of majesty here. No, no man could speak in a way that befits what is here set before us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we pray for your help. We pray that you would so emblazon these realities upon our souls that that we would be growing in the downward disposition of a Christward self-perception, that we would be humble, Lord. We know that humility is the way of blessedness, that it is only the humble who will be Exalted to the new heavens and the new earth. Only the meek inherit the land. We need humility, God. We pray that by a sight of our Savior, day after day after day, through the Word, by the Spirit, we would be growing downward. Bring us lower, God. And help us to sense now, as we come to the end of this sermon series. Help us to sense our responsibility. We are responsible for all that we have seen over these 21 weeks. We are responsible before the God of heaven and earth. Help us to sense that God. Help us to not just file these sermons away in our minds, but to put them into action. And to cry out to you to do what only you can. Do it, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.